On Shill Kill, we pair a crypto with a riveting true crime case, weaving together the worlds of innovation and investigation. Today, we shed light on a groundbreaking project before delving into a dark mystery. Stay curious and ready for more. I'm Chip Mahoney, and this is Shill Kill, a unique fusion of finance and mystery. If you're curious about crypto and love true crime, this is a place for you. Today, it's another mystery, Unwrapping XRP, also known as Ripple, that's a top 10 crypto project. And with the true crime, a 20-year anniversary of a total mystery, the Maura Murray disappearance. What else can be said about it? Well, I've got something to say, weaving one into the next, and I've got that for you next here on Shill Kill. Thanks for tuning in. This is the audio version, but if you like video, there's Spotify, YouTube, TikTok, and whatnot. Another reason to subscribe, come back for more, because I will have more for you just about every few weeks or so, a new crypto review paired with a true crime case, a real mystery like I like to do here at Shill Kill, because this podcast is for true crime fans, but also those who are curious about crypto, new in crypto, and want to learn about it before the bull run takes over. So you got to learn this stuff if you want to take advantage. That's what I got for you here. So if you know about anyone else like yourself who loves true crime, wants to learn about crypto, please share the podcast, come back for more because I will always have more for you. If you have heard me before, and it wasn't just a drive-by, as I like to say, you're dropping the clip, pulling the crossover SUV background on me. Know that I do appreciate that. I try to get bigger and better for you each and every time off and give you a lot of reason and value for being here. And though I am a DeFi expert, I promise not to fire back on you with a bunch of technical jargon I know you do not need. You just need to know enough about the project to make sound decisions and be comfortable in crypto. Because the thing about crypto is just not to miss out on the opportunity and don't miss out what I have for you next about XRP. XRP. This is a top 10 crypto project. If you head over to CoinMarketCap, you will see in the top 10 of all cryptos currently trading around 52 cents a share or so at the time of this recording, which is kind of typical because I kind of see it like a stable coin. It doesn't move too much to the up or down. It just kind of stays the same. And that's got to be frustrating for people who've been holding this for a while. So it's kind of boring in my opinion. And in crypto, you got to be excited. So unless you're really excited about what these guys do, how they work with banks and they're doing a lot of things with payments and so forth, unless you're really thrilled about that and it's a page turner for you, then, you know, there's just other cryptos out there to be excited about those page turners and uh, those mysteries to unravel. But you got to do your own research. And I guess the benefit here is that it is in the top 10. It's legitimized and so forth. And I think for somebody new in crypto, when they rush onto the exchanges and they're like, I don't want to miss out, I think they'll be attracted to something like XRP when they see it because 
they're going to be attracted to the top 10 and also other cryptos that are pulling a bunch of green candles. So um, it's something to just think about. It's just to be excited about what you're doing when you do your research. But this is a blockchain. I think it was uh, created over 10 years ago to compete with Bitcoin because as I've said before, Bitcoin's kind of boring, kind of slow. It reminds me of a cold case in a way in that it's just super slow. Um, it's like five to eight transactions per second. It's one of the the downfalls to uh, Bitcoin. But you know, check out the previous episode where I talked about stacks. You know, learn something about that. Uh, what can be done with Bitcoin? Nonetheless, uh, XRP does a lot more transactions per second, so it's way more efficient. However, it's got a much bigger supply than Bitcoin because Bitcoin has a 21 million supply and that's really attractive to just about anybody who's a holder in traditional finance and so forth. Only 21 million. There's way more XRP than that. And maybe that's why it just kind of sits in the middle like a stable coin. Um, but do your own research. And if you love what they do and you find it thrilling, that's a page turner, then yeah, you can get it on a centralized exchange, uh, trade it out of your bank account and add that to your portfolio. But the key thing here, the takeaway, and it's kind of the transition into the true crime is decentralization. Meaning that when you're on a centralized exchange like Coinbase, for instance, you're kind of working with a bank anyways, because you know, in the real world, when you're out at the bank, uh, they can be closed the next day. They can uh, put a message on their website. They'll, they'll be closed for the holidays. Um, open at certain hours or maybe even freezing assets because there's some catastrophe. So they have control and authority over what's going on. They're a centralized figure and decentralization is a key component to crypto. And that's why I think the XRP victory is really important, at least for now, because it keeps decentralization in place in a uh, industry that's always trying to be more centralized to have that authority figure. And there's this old saying, uh, you know, for a new industry, it's an old saying that not your keys, not your crypto. So yeah, they do have control over things. Like if you're working on uh, Coinbase to acquire the assets, uh, they can do basically whatever they want. Um, and so when you have the SEC trying to say something's a security, they're really trying to centralize things more and more. So it's an important victory there. But decentralization means that like on a blockchain, like Ripple, or uh, Bitcoin, where they're mining the blocks um, based on smart contracts, that there is no authority other than the smart contract. As long as those parameters are met, then you can do business. Uh, so it's very inclusive. And so that's really important. And that's a key aspect of crypto is to be decentralized, meaning that on a blockchain, that it's essentially a peer-to-peer -peer network. You're not leveraging computing power by working with a centralized company like Google. You're not um, trading uh, US dollars to use their computing power to run apps or do anything like that. The computing power is leveraged to a peer-to-peer -peer network. And that's what a blockchain is. It's just peer-to-peer -peer computer network and uh, keeping things decentralized in that manner. So if that remains that way going forward in crypto and XRP isn't sued again by the SEC, which I would say, well, can't trust uh, that not to happen because they've sued Binance. They've sued, uh, yeah, Binance.us and they've sued Coinbase as well. 
So even if they lost against XRP, doesn't mean they won't sue them again because they're always trying to centralize things in order to have control over that industry. And now that Bitcoin was legitimized through the spot ETFs and traditional finance came into play, the biggest traditional finance there is uh, because they favor Bitcoin, then that wasn't such a victory for decentralization. That was more of a victory for the authority figure who wants to control what you do. It wants a piece of the action by telling you they're protecting you. It's like going through the airport line. Uh, you're not doing anything wrong, but you got to pay them in order to not be hassled. So you got to do that. Um, now, the mob guys will tell you that's racketeering and they'd be right, but that's just the way that it goes. So decentralization is a thing. And when you're looking at cryptos, Think about XRP, know what they're doing. But if you find it boring and you could care less about how they're working with bankers, because that's not exciting at all, that's not a page turner, then there's others out there to get excited about. But in the true crime and the story I have here, the Mora Murray mystery, 20 years later, what more can be said about it? Well, I'll be covering some of the things that stick out to me, sort of a recap, but in my author mind, some things, especially inside the vehicle, that call out to me in a way. And I will be talking about decentralization in that case and see how I kind of put things together in this blockchain, see if it makes something for you on this episode. And I got that next for you. It's been 20 years since the disappearance of Maura Murray in Haverhill, New Hampshire. She was 21 years old. It was February 9th, 2004. Uh, her car hit a snowbank and she was seen for a little bit and then she was never seen again. 20 years has passed almost to the very date. This was a time in 2004 when we didn't know what Facebook was because Facebook was just born. It was only a few days old. And in fact, it didn't even know what it was or what it would become. Uh, nor did we know, but we certainly know that today. We know what social media is and we didn't have blockchain. We didn't know what that was either. So if we're talking about this happening in the modern times, when we have social media, we have so much access to everything and we have blockchain, then I think we would know a lot more about what happened to Maura Murray on that day. We might've even found her because in today's age, I don't think this stuff would have happened. It was right on the cusp of social media, sharing information, and of course, blockchain, because blockchain like XRP, Ripple, and Bitcoin can do things. But I think something like Avalanche, which uh, is a proof of stake blockchain, if you use that investigations uh, where you can trace information, uh, catalog stuff, timestamp everything, then I think the information stays central to the case itself. And it's not decentralized because this case over 20 years has gone from the local authorities to nationwide to worldwide. So it kind of like XRP where it's cross borders, how they do like cross border payments. So this case has, has gone everywhere and it's a mystery, of course, but everybody's got an opinion and there might be some facts in those opinions, 
but it's decentralized to the central nature, the local nature of a case like this that needs to have movement. So if it happened during a time when social media, everybody knew how to use it and share it, and maybe even had blockchain to store information, track all the data, everything, and keep it more central to the case itself, then I think we would maybe find out more about what happened to her on that fateful day. So there's a lot that happened on that day that I'll share some of those uh, aspects, but everybody's been looking for her outside of the car. You know, in my author mind, in my mystery that I write in my mind, I like to look at different things from time to time. And here, I want to look inside that Saturn vehicle. I want to look inside the car because there's something that calls out to me. I'm going to share that with you next. What can you say about a 25-year-old girl who died? That she was beautiful and brilliant. That she loved Mozart and Bach and the Beatles. That was from Love Story. But what could you also say about a 21-year-old girl who may or may not still be alive? That she was beautiful also. Her name, Maura Murray. And we're still looking for her 20 years after she disappeared. February 9th, 2004, Haver Hill, New Hampshire. What happened to her? Is she still alive? People have been looking for her outside of her car for 20 years. This story has gone local, national, and worldwide. But I want to look for her or more about her inside of her car, inside of that Saturn is where I want to go to now. What was she like and why did this have to happen? Because if it happened today with social media and all the technology we have, the tools of our trade, blockchain and so forth, then maybe we would have learned more. But this was the day that social media was born and it's just a different world today. So what can be learned about going inside the car? There's one thing that calls out to my author mind, and it's a book that she had on her person called Not Without Peril. And this is a book that really only a hardcore adventurer type would have on them. I can't imagine a casual person to the outdoors or somebody with other interests would have this type of book that they would not only have in their car, but they're taking with them where they go. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, something that's close to them, maybe like a Bible for the outdoors, especially for the White Mountains there in central and northern New Hampshire. Where I'm told it can go from summer temperatures to sub-zero overnight. And that book, Not Without Peril, is quite a read. 
I've read through some of it and also the reviews to learn more about this book and why it was written and what it's all about. Cause I've never been to that area, but not without peril. That's something that you can translate into saying not without immediate danger. So when I think about Mora, I think about her not being without immediate danger. Something was happening, but this book, I think says a lot about this beautiful girl that she wasn't your average girl. Uh, this person was different to have something like this book on her person says a lot about her, at least to me, to my author mind. Now, when I read through the reviews on this thing, it's very interesting to me that every chapter of this book is another person's death another person's tragedy. It just goes from one chapter to the next. And apparently the author grew up in the area and knows it like his, the back of his hand, they would say. But the reviews are also very important because these are from people that have physically been there and know other stories as well. So I think Mora was intrigued by this enough to take this book with her where she was going. I don't know how long she had it where she purchased it. I don't know if it was something from a college course. I have no idea, but it was in her vehicle. And I think that says a lot about her and maybe something about this case that she was not without immediate danger. What does that mean? Here's how I kind of see it. And this is my author mind. It's just speculation, but I'm going to kind of flesh it out here. During that day, she had alcohol in her car, at least. She might have had it in her body, but that was also in her car. And this uh, accident happened at a hairpin turn where her Saturn went right into a snowbank. And I can imagine that area, that, that snowy area, maybe getting closer to dark. And it's just hard to judge what's happening with the road, how fast the turn is coming. And if she had alcohol in her system, then that's going to compound that peril that's going on. And so we know about the accident. We do know that afterwards, uh, at a point, there was a bus driver, I think a school bus driver, as it says, that did interact with her, uh, talked about getting the police involved, and she pleaded against that. And I would imagine that's because she had alcohol in her system. And that's just a guess of mine, but that's what I imagine. And also her, her car was inoperable. She had damaged it to the point that um, it just wouldn't work. So maybe that was something that made her feel terrible because of, oh, I don't know. You know, if that happens, it just, um, it's not fun. So no police involved, uh, car is stuck, it's cold out, and she doesn't want the police involved and she doesn't want any help. But she does have a book inside of her vehicle that talks about the most treacherous outdoor stuff you can imagine, where uh, you go out one day and it's summer weather and it goes sub-zero overnight. Now, she's not in the White Mountains, but she has this book in her car. So, what does she think about her immediate environment when she looks around? Is she familiar with it? She might be. 
Is it the White Mountains? Is it the most dangerous, perilous place in the United States, according to this book? No, it's not. It's close, but it's not where that place is. So if she has this book and she is maybe preparing to go to the White Mountains one day, or maybe she's been there before, I don't know. But this environment, this immediate environment seems not as dangerous to her as something that's like in that book. So that survival manual is kind of like 10 times the situation she's in. So I think she's rather confident about what she needs to do and where she needs to go. And maybe when she goes through that area, uh, let's say a wooded area or somewhere there's not a lot of homes. I, I don't know. I've never been there, but maybe she feels very confident about what she's doing. And maybe because she is uh, a little tipsy, had some wine in the car, uh, maybe that's affecting her judgment. So if there were any other book in there uh, other than this one, then maybe I would think otherwise. But when I read through the reviews here and I learn more about this book, it's just one chapter after the next of people who went to the White Mountains and died, like a tragic event. And so she must have read about those events. She might have finished the book and maybe she had reread it, but it was on her person and she was taking it with her somewhere. It wasn't necessarily a book that you found in her bedroom or where she lived. It was physically in her car. And I think that says a lot about her. So when this accident happened, when these events happened, it was a perilous situation. However, I don't think she saw that she was in immediate danger and therefore she denied, uh, you know, any help from a school bus driver or getting the police involved. And maybe if not having the police involved, she's not going to get a ticket. She's not going to get in trouble. She might be able to figure out on her own without anyone knowing. So maybe that was her mentality at the time. So she's in danger but she doesn't feel like she's in danger because she knows what danger looks like because she has that book on her person. And that's the most treacherous place in the United States. I mean, there's other places you could go to. You could go to the Yellowstone zone of death. You could go to other places in the United States that you don't want to be stuck in overnight. But according to this book, the White Mountains are top of the list. Not too many people know about New Hampshire and these mountains that live in other parts of the country. But if you read this book, you're going to have a first person account and one chapter after the next, one death after the next. So that's what I think. I think she was in a more dangerous situation than she thought and how she had prepared for danger, whether she was going to go to the White Mountains uh, at some time in the future and was planning on that, because that seems to me a survivalist guide for that area. They do say it's one of the top 100 books in the New England area that she should have. Um, maybe so. But I think that if you read something like that, then you're kind of badass and you kind of think that you're prepared for stuff. And so this happened. And I don't think this scene that she was in, uh, maybe cold and dark, uh, maybe she was familiar with it. I don't know, but I don't think it seemed too perilous for her. That's what I can assess of maybe her mentality at this point in time. So could it have been where she was disoriented 
and something happened to her out in the environment. Well, I do believe that she would have been found. Uh, I don't know how deep the snowfall was at that time. I have no idea, but I would imagine through a search that something would have been found that there's really no way that she could have just uh, walked several miles and continued to do so without being spotted or if the environment uh, did take her because of uh, something, you know, maybe being too cold out or something happened based on the environment, then her body would have been found. So if that's not the case, which I don't think it is, then I kind of feel that if I were writing the story, at least if I were writing the fiction and I put that, uh, not fiction, but if I put that true, uh, factual book in her car and I made her that type of a character, then maybe I would have wrote that character and her guard would have been down during a much perilous time than she thought that she was in. And therefore someone she came across, whether she had hitched a ride or someone spotted her would most likely be responsible for why she was never found. So the best thing I can surmise about this beautiful 21 year old girl inside and out of all the things that she loved, did she love Mozart and Bach? Did she love the Beatles? I don't know, but she loved that book, not without peril. I can imagine so because she was not without that book. It was inside of her car. It wasn't in her home. It wasn't somewhere else. It was inside of the last place that she was before she disappeared. It's like being with a person before you disappear. The investigators are going to talk to the last person that was with that person. So they can't talk to the book. They can't talk to the author, but what can be learned from that? Well, I think she was in a perilous situation, but I think that because she was so prepared for a much dangerous situation, she didn't think much of it. She thought she could handle it all on her own at that time. So that's what I have here for you on Shield Kill, where I pair the crypto with a crime. Is it a crime? Did someone do something to her? Well, in the fiction that I write, that's probably where I would go based on what I put in her car and what was last with her. Not a person, but what I've described. So thanks for being here. And uh, I'll have more for you next time. But on this episode, I'm out. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again as we uncover the fascinating connection between two seemingly disparate worlds. Until next time.